0: Thank you, Ben. Good recovery remembering to read the scriptures for us. And thank you to the Children's Ministry for ministering to us with word and song. Um, It's amazing to see how much the Children's Ministry has grown and how fast our children are growing uh, physically and also spiritually in the Lord. Really impressed upon my heart. Just a imperative, a need for us to be praying for these children, praying for the teachers, praying for Gary and Cindy as they lead this ministry. Psalm one forty-five, verse four says that one generation will tell of God's deeds to another; they will commend their mighty deeds. And that's the responsibility of every believer, and that's the responsibility given to these teachers. So, as we pray for God's missions evangelism works throughout the world and let's be mindful of the missions work that God is doing in our own families in our own church and especially in the hearts of these little ones that they might know Christ that they might trust in the Lord and they might be as they prayed and exhorted us the ambassadors of Christ serving alongside with us in the future I mean that would be just uh, a prayer answered prayer answered if uh, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we send uh, Derek, Lindsay, and Nathan, and Eugene, you know, Tim, short-term missions, right? They're serving with uh, Matthew Smith, right, Daniel Smith. That will be a neat thing. Um, let's pray for that end, that God would grant that to us. Well, um, kind of reign it in from our mini-activities this morning. And our hearts are really uh, excited for so many things. One of which is the Czech team going leaving this afternoon, <clears throat> and our hearts are with them. But let me focus your attention to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three. Several years ago, I received a letter from a friend of mine who was a missionary in Indonesia. And in this uh, letter, the whole family. The whole family was accounting to, to us what Christmas means to them. Um, the missionary's wife wrote this, that Christmas to her meant spending time with family and friends. The kids wrote that Christmas for them was about getting gifts. And he wrote at the end, and I appreciate his honesty, he wrote, Christmas gives me stress because I have to go shopping. I have to buy a gift for my wife and it has to be something she likes. Writing Christmas cards is another stress for me. After the first card, I don't know what to write, so I usually don't send any. Um, many ministry assignments and activities take most of the time, and I get distracted and lose focus on Christ. I hope it doesn't happen this year. And this was from a veteran missionary. I really appreciate it in honesty I don't know about you guys, but I, I, too, find myself in this Christmas season, I find myself not in solitude and in deep meditation in the Word, but I find myself deep in meditation about all the decorations and the secular things that are attached to Christmas. One speaker said, quote, Christmas has become so complex, so chaotic, so confusing with all the stuff that the reality of the simplicity of the birth of Christ has lost its significance. Isn't it a challenge for us to approach Christmas with the right um, attitude, with the right preparedness? Uh, I think it is a special challenge for us living in this generation, in this part of the world, for us to approach Christ with a heart of worship. It is so easy to go along with the flow and conform to our culture for this, for this day. You now, how have you prepared for Christmas? What are, what are some activities that you've engaged in in preparing for Christmas? Maybe um, you've been saving money for several months. You knew you had to buy gifts for family and friends. You have bought gifts, you have wrapped gifts, and you've given away gifts. You got a tree. You've decorated a tree. Maybe you've decorated your house with Christmas lights. Maybe you bought cards. Maybe you got a picture of your family and went to Sam's Club at the last minute and they are ready for our delivery today? Maybe you're getting ready for you've gotten ready for family gatherings. All these things, maybe, have they clouded your mind in terms of preparing rightly for Christmas? I know it has for me. Two weeks ago, for a whole week, I was just struggling with a dilemma. My wife and I were going back and forth, just debating, not debating, but just thinking through a major issue in our family. Are we going to get a real Christmas tree, or are we going to get an artificial Christmas tree? And, um, you know was pushing for the artificial Christmas tree because it's cleaner, it's neater, maybe more economical long term. And I was pushing for the real Christmas tree because I don't want something artificial. It's kind of, it's not authentic. Where is the tradition? Where is the meaning of the season if you get an artificial Christmas tree? And then it dawned on us, wait a minute. It doesn't matter. There is no inherent value spiritually, whether you get a real tree or a fake tree or a small one or a white one, one with lights, without lights. And it dawned on me that I've also lost track on how to rightly prepare for Christmas. Well, I've been reading this week the gospel accounts from the birth of Jesus Christ. And I noticed in Luke chapter 3, in the parallel account in Matthew 3 as well, That John the Baptist directly tells God's people how to prepare for Christ's arrival. That's what Christmas is, right? The day commemorating the arrival of Christ. And John the Baptist directly tells us how we are to prepare for Christmas, the arrival of Christ. And it is not in the ways we so commonly attach to Christmas in our minds. He doesn't talk about sending out Christmas cards. He does not talk about giving gifts to one another, or Christmas trees, or eggnog. Not about spending time with friends and family. Not about fancy dinners and desserts. Not about time off from work. John the Baptist tells us specifically here in Luke chapter three how we are to prepare for Christmas, and it's just four simple points this morning: the messenger, the message the motive, and the marks. Four M's. Messenger, message, motive, and the marks. Well, let's look at the messenger. First of all, the messenger is John the Baptist. Second part of verse 2, it be, The word of God came to John, the son of Zachariah in the wilderness. John here is John the Baptist. He's the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John was a common Jewish name in the New Testament times. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yohanan. It means Yahweh is gracious. Jehovah is gracious. Now this name John is significant because unlike oh God, this name was given to him by God himself you go back to chapter 1 verse 5 Luke describes Zachariah and Elizabeth verse 6 chapter 1 verse 6 Luke describes them as upright in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly but verse 7 because Elizabeth was barren they had no children and they were both well along in years when Zechariah's division was on duty. He was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by Lot, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go on to the temple and to burn incense. Verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, he was gripped with fear. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Well, Zechariah is perplexed. It's unbelievable that they will be able to have a child in their old age. He asks the angel in verse 18, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel identifies himself as Gabriel. And because of his lack of faith, verse 20, the angel says, Now nah, I will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happened happens, because you do not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. The people were waiting for Zechariah outside the temple when he came out. He could not speak to them. Verse 22, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. For so he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. I'll fast forward nine months. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard of the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. Yahweh is gracious. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet. He hadn't spoken a single word in nine months. He had to mute. They thought it was a permanent condition. The first word out of his mouth was, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened, verse 64. His tongue was loosed. He began to speak, praising God, and he concludes his praise in verse 76 by saying, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, To guide our feet into the path of peace. It was obvious this child was ordained by God to be a prophet of the Most High, coming before Christ to prepare a way for him. And not just the circumstances surrounding his birth, his life portrayed that God's hand was upon John. If I were to use one word to describe John the Baptist, the word would be intense. As soon as he grew up, verse 80, he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. His lifestyle portrayed this this intensity. Matthew 3, 4, Matthew describes John's clothing and his diet. And it says that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And in Matthew eleven eleven, our Lord says, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. No one in the history of the world was greater than John the Baptist. It is incredible. Our Lord is saying that John was greater than Noah, greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph, greater than Moses, Elijah, David, or any of the other Old Testament men of God. Our Lord says, he's the best of the best. He stands head and shoulders above all godly men throughout history, greater than any of the kings, any of the emperors, philosophers, or military leaders of history. Now, we got to ask, what is the reason for John's greatness? He was not born from an esteemed family. He did not come from a royal lineage. He was not wealthy, actually. He was quite poor. He was not very successful in the eyes of the world. In fact, his ministry steadily diminished, declined towards the end of his life. The reason for his greatness is due to one simple fact, that he was the herald, the messenger, the one who would come before Jesus Christ to announce his arrival. His role and function was simple and clear, to prepare God's people for the King of Kings. After spending most of his life at the right moment, God spoke to his heart, And he began to thunder out the message God had given him in that desert. And what was that message? The king is coming. The king is at hand. Because the king is coming, his kingdom is here as well. Well, that's the radical messenger. And let's look at the message. Let's look at the message. How did John proclaim his message, first of all? How did John call God's people to prepare for Jesus' arrival? He preached repentance. He proclaimed it. He announced it. He declared it. He preached and called all men, women, and children to do one thing. And that was to repent. Verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 1, Matthew records, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Preaching is from Caruso, the primary meaning which is to herald, it was used of the official whose duty it was to proclaim loudly and extensively the coming of the king. In ancient times, it was common for a herald to precede the arrival of the monarch. And he would go ahead before the king and he would announce his arrival. That herald would come with a large group of servants and they would make sure the roadway was smooth and uncluttered as possible. If there were potholes, it would fill the potholes. It would remove rocks, remove debris. Unsightly litter would be burned or hidden. As the group traveled along and worked, the herald would proclaim in a loud voice to everyone that the king is at hand. The king is coming. And that was John, the baptizer's role and his ministry. He understood that his ministry was a fulfillment of of Isaiah's prophecy, like in verses 4 through 6, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, the herald of a king, he did physical preparation. But for the baptizer, it was different. It wasn't a call to physical preparation. He was calling God's people to prepare themselves spiritually. And so in Luke chapter 3, we see how we are to prepare for Christmas. How Christians are to approach This day commemorating the incarnation of Christ. The message, if I were to reduce it to one word, it's simple. John preached repentance. One word is repent. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 2 as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, the Greek word, menon, means more than regret or sorrow. Repentance is not just grieving for sin. It's more than just feeling sorry for iniquity or or wickedness or depravity. Repentance means to turn around. It means to change directions. Change direction. It means to change the mind and will. And it doesn't just mean changing. It always means in the Bible... Changing from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light, worship of self to worship towards God. Repentance at its core is a recognition of personal sin, having a heartfelt remorse for that particular sin, and changing your direction, your life towards God. We see this in David's prayer in Psalm 51.1 when he sees the depth of his sinfulness and committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. He repents of his sin. He mourns over it and seeks to change. And that's what repentance is. It is seeing sin and God sees it. Having genuine remorse and having a lifestyle change. Having a directional change. Just merely acknowledging sin and feeling sorry for sin is not repentance. There must be a change. If it is to be genuine, that repentance must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. Look at verse 8. John says to the crowds that were coming to him, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying, make sure the Greek word there is, it means equal in weight. Make sure your deeds, your lifestyle, your your, your attitude, your, your direction is equal to your professional repentance. Make sure they're equal. It's not just heartfelt, but it's lifestyle as well. Well, let's move to the marks of genuine repentance. We saw the messenger. We saw the message. The marks of genuine repentance. Again, it is not merely some emotional experience. Biblical repentance is very practical. It is seen in the mundane area of one's life, the normal areas of one's life. And we see that in John's teaching here in Luke chapter 3. remember going to a um, revival a long time ago when I was in, in college years. And they had a prayer time after, and all these students were coming up in repentance. And they had a time of open prayer, open mic. And they were sharing... Oh, they repented and now they want to be a missionary, go to missions in North Korea. Another student shared how he wants to die for Christ. And how another student shared all these grand things they want to do for the Lord. I remember the speaker came up and he said, that's not what God wants from you. God doesn't want you right now to go to North Korea to be a missionary. He doesn't want you to die for Christ. He wants you to go home and obey your parents. He wants you to go home and clean your room. He wants maybe us, your heart of repentance. He wants us to respond in the mundane areas of life. That is true repentance. And that's exactly what John the Baptist says. He says, the king is coming, you must change. And so three groups of people come to John and he says, what must we do? What shall we do? We want to repent. We want to be baptized. What must I do to show that my repentance is genuine? Verse 10. The crowd asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, If you have two tunics, share with him who has none. If you have extra food, do likewise. Do likewise. Very simple. It's not from... Ecstatic experience of repentance, great remorse, heartfelt sorrow and tears. John says, okay, you have two jackets? Why do you need two? You just need one. There are people out there without a jacket and it's cold. Give that person your extra jacket. You have two pairs of shoes? Why do you need two? You have extra food and you throw it away. There are people who are going hungry. Give them your food. Right? That's how the world lives. The world lives to accumulate. world thrives on having more than they need. It feeds their pride. Well, John is saying that is not the kingdom lifestyle. He's saying get rid of practical selfishness. Get rid of practical greed. At the same time, be compassionate towards the poor. That's how you prepare for Christ. In, Luke, in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 4 through 7, Isaiah condemns his people for the wrong kind of fasting. They fast, and it ends in quarreling and strife. They fast for that one day to be godly and righteous before men. And Isaiah says, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Isn't the purpose of fasting not just to devote yourself to prayer, but also to give that food to those who are hungry, to give to clothe the naked? To be compassionate to those who are in need. It is remarkable, isn't it? John the Baptist doesn't say, okay, follow me. We're going to evangelize the world. Follow me. I will engage in spiritual warfare. We'll be children of light. He says, do these practical things. That is Mark's reflecting genuine repentance. First Timothy 6, 17, 17 through 19, maybe a verse that we should consider in our affluent culture, in our affluent society. I mean, it's Christmas, every Christmas, the biggest dilemma is, I don't need anything. I don't. I don't want anything. Somebody, some people gave me a gift card to Best Buy, and I go there, and there's nothing I really want, nothing I really need. And that's a dilemma. I'm sure you guys too. Sir, what can I give you for this Christmas? I have everything. And she asked, me, what, "What do you want? I have everything I need. I have everything I want. So what's the solution? First Timothy six seventeen through nineteen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a the firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You go to globalrichlist.org and you log in your household income and you make more than $30,000 a year for household you are in the top 99% in terms of wealth in this world. Like 5.8 billion people are poorer than you if you make $30,000 a year. So when when Paul says here, command those who are rich, he's speaking maybe top 10%. Well, we are all in top 1% in terms of the world, and it applies to us. James 1:27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, the tax collectors, verse 12, also came to be baptized, and said to him, We want to repent. We see our sins. We want to write. Be- we want to be right before God. What shall we do? And he said to him, "Collect no more than you are author- authorized to do." So that says, "Stop stealing. Stop lying." So for us, you going to obey God? Stop cheating on your taxes. Um, stop robbing, stealing from your employers, stealing time or, or material material things. Ephesians 4.28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but he must work. Doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. It's not just not stealing, but he must work. It's a command that you might have the ability to give to others generously. Verse 14, the soldier also asked him, and we, what shall we do? We work so much. We get paid so little. What shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And about this one, and be content with your wages. Be content with your pay. And then they take a poll, a survey, and 75% of Americans hate their job. All right. Number one reason, or the top reason actually, was they they felt they weren't getting paid enough. And in fact, I think almost everybody feels that way, right? No matter what you make, you always feel like, I'm worth more than this. Or you want your repentance to be genuine? John the Baptist says, Be content with your wages. Do not murmur, do not complain. That's what Paul said Philippians Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He understood 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Hebrews 13.5, the writer of Hebrews also warned: Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, In the Greek, it's a three-time negation. God is saying, never, ever, ever will I leave you. Christians must be content because we have God. And that's everything. Well, the messenger message, the marks, the motive. Why do we need to repent? What is the reason for this personal preparation? The first reason, first motivation for urgent repentance is the arrival of the king. Right. Verse 4, make make ready the way for the Lord. If the herald is here, that means king is not far behind. Right. If you see the, the one who is proclaiming the king is at hand, that means the king is not far behind. In fact, in Matthew 3, 2, he said the kingdom of God is at hand, is here. The people should repent. We must repent We must be converted because the king is coming. And he deserves and he requires no less. We must repent. We must change now. John's message was simple. The king is here. And he demands repentance. Second reason, the imminent judgment of God. The imminent judgment of God. Verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John the baptizer knew, understood that God's judgment was imminent because the Messiah is here. Now this is a great illustration, right? A farmer would go out, go out at, the en- at the end of every harvest season. And he would look at all the trees that were not fruitful. And this tree was taking all the nutrients, was taking up space, was a detriment to his farm, and he would cut that tree down. So a modern illustration would be your managers going around the offices, looking at the accounting books, looking at each department that is unproductive, that is losing money for the company. He's going through every employee and seeing their work, their product. And seeing, is is this employee adding to our company, or is he or she a detriment? And he is ready to fire everyone who is not being productive. The Baptist is saying, saying the axe is at the root of the tree. He's done looking. He's about to, to cut these trees down and throw them to the fire. Fire is a frequent biblical symbol of the torment of divine punishment and and judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah was burned and destroyed by brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Korah and his men and their household were swallowed up in number 16 and went down alive to Sheol and fire came forth and consumed them. In his role as a righteous judge, God has frequently called the consuming fire. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, in the last chapter, speaks of the coming day of the Lord. That it will be like burning, like, like a furnace. John says that every tree that does not bear fruit. That merely has an emotional response. They are sorrowful for their sin, but they're not producing fruit to be cut down and thrown to the fire. That's the second reason for the urgency of repentance. And third reason is the final separation. The final separation. In this group, there are many categories of people. The general crowds, there were soldiers, there were tax collectors, there were Pharisees. There are Sadducees, but in the end, all these categories do not matter. No lasting significance in these earthly categories. The final separation is all that matters. Verse 17. This, this Christ, Jesus, whose thongs, of, whose handles I am not worthy to untie, His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will separate the grain and the chaff. The chaff will burn away. He will separate. And grain he will bring into the barn but the chaff with unquenchable fire. Christ will divide at the judgment between these two and that's all that matters. Earthly categories do not matter. Well, to close our time, ask you a simple question. Are you ready for the incarnation of Christ, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords? As Christians, we don't make New Year's resolutions. We make Christmas repentance. On Christmas, We repent of our many sins because Christ has come and Christ, the King, is here. And all the more as a reminder of the future return of Christ. The first coming was a humble, gentle, meek coming as a suffering Savior. When He returns, He'll return in all His glory, in all His authority and majesty, and He will come to judge, all the more calling us to repent. And I said this before, you know, on our birthdays, we give gifts to one another. It's the birthday of Christ. We are to give gifts to Him. And what are the gifts that are worthy of Him? What are the gifts that He desires? The gift of our repentance. producing fruit that reveals true repentance. What about you today? How about taking the Bible literally? How about if you have two warm jackets, giving away one? If that is a deed that is equal to true repentance. If you have two dress shoes, two basketball shoes, right, two coats. Why do we need two? If we have food to spare, what shall we do? The Baptist says, King is coming. Be compassionate towards the poor. Do not steal. Do not rob. And finally, be content. You know, some of these Pharisees presumed upon... um, the baptizer, and they were thinking, well, we're a child of Abraham. And before they even said anything, John the Baptist said, do not presume, do not begin to say to yourself, I'm a child of Abraham. Out of these stones, God can raise up a child of Abraham. Likewise with us, We, we must not presume, I'm a member of Cornerstone Bible Church. I have prayed the prayer. I have walked down the aisle. I have many experiences. I'm involved in ministry. Therefore, I don't need to genuinely repent. John the Baptist teaches us how we are to prepare for our King that we might worship Him as He is worthy. Our Heavenly Father, we understand that, that this is not a Christmas message per se. It's not a Christmas message that necessarily warms our hearts. But in a way, um, it's the most comforting, encouraging passage, encouraging truth, uh, calling us, Lord, to live out our repentance, to practically carry forth our heart's conviction to the practical realities of daily living because of the King. Because He has come and because He will return. Lord, help us to make our faith real and it would not it would not compartmentalize our lives separate our lives between sacred and secular. Lord, we would see our lives as it is wholly belonging to You And we will seek to apply these truths to the practical, basic, simple realities of our lives. So that when you do come, when you do return, that we will be prepared. That we will be ready. Ready to follow you. Ready to seek after you and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.